Hi everyone, this is Sarah from Hamilton. Today we're going to be talking about Joseph's harvest and the messianic vision of Genesis. Before we get into the main subject of this video, I want to say that if you'd like to support this channel, please consider becoming a patron or a YouTube member. In addition to some exclusive content at all three tiers, though I like to keep most of the content available for a general audience, uh, the third tier guarantees you access to an hour-long call or Zoom call or whatever you'd like to use to take advantage of it every month and you can talk to me about whatever you'd like to talk about, ask whatever questions you'd like to talk, and you can take advantage of that every month as long as you're a patron or member, if you so choose. You can also schedule a call on a one-off basis through PayPal and see the details in the description box below. Or you could make a one-off contribution through the YouTube Thanks button. So with that said, let's get into the main subject of this video. In Genesis thirty-seven twenty-four, we are told that there was no water in the pit where Joseph was thrown. This must be taken in light of the whole story of Genesis. God places Adam in the Garden of Eden and instructs him to cultivate and shape the world into glory. The rivers which divided and flowed throughout the world marked out the various lands which the human family was to cultivate by the water of life and the Holy Spirit. There is a great deal underlying this reading of Genesis 1-3, to but it is too complex to repeat here. I've discussed it in other videos, particularly my one on the biblical story of the Eucharist. The process of sprinkling the world with holiness, shaping it into new glories, and consecrating these glories into God and thanksgiving is summed up in the process of producing tribute. That is the tribute offering, the mincha, that is described in Leviticus chapter 2 and elsewhere. One waters the world, brings up its grains. Uh, these are the plants which had not yet sprouted. Uh, they had not yet come up above the ground in Genesis 2.5. One uses sword and fire, Notes the cherub in, who guards the Garden of Eden has a flaming sword. These are the sacrificial implements. To divide them and bake them into bread. And one consecrates that bread to God. In the symbolism of the Bible, this consecration, the tribute offering, to which was added not only bread but also wine when the land was inherited by Joshua and Israel, this tribute offering was the liturgical expression of the tithe, the offering to God of Israel's increase for the glorification of the temple. The process of moving outwards, developing the world, and moving inwards to rejoice in thanksgiving through tribute from that glorified world depended on the continued reality of the divine presence located in the sanctuary. It is God who sustains all things in living existence. Man, as the image of God, is graciously shaped so that he is placed in the midst of this divine dynamism. God gives of himself outward in creation as he gathers things to himself inward in perfection, and he does so according to the very same perfect activity. Man is created as the image of God so that God realizes his ongoing creative work through the cooperative participation of the human family. Man, brought into conjunction with the will of God, has true freedom in selecting among the many varied goods which can be realized in any given place and time. With the creation brought to fuller glory by the free cooperation of man as instrument and mediator, the creation is brought to perfection as this very same human family brings to the Heavenly Father the Eucharist as a sign of thanksgiving for all those things which have been received and thus molded by man. This is why the tithe is specifically collected in relation to the consecrated bread and wine in the liturgical celebration. The water which springs up at the fountain of Mount Eden's peak is the sign and expression of the dwelling of the divine presence with creation. 
in the geography of the holy mountain. The top of that mountain corresponds to the Holy of Holies, where the divine glory dwells. And you can see this just in uh, the structure of Mount Sinai, where the glory cloud is overshadowing Moses at the top of the mountain. And that is an analogy to the holy mountain on Eden. You can see that in Ezekiel 28 and elsewhere. But with the gates of Eden newly locked after the fall, this entire process, the very pattern of existence, has been interrupted. When Noah's family emerges upon the mountains of Ararat, there is no more Eden, where the presence dwells, whether locked or otherwise. The creation bursts forth to wash the world clean of man, and in the aftermath of the flood, hope seems to be drying out. Abraham is promised a land of milk and honey, and yet the land keeps enduring famines. Instead of being full of plenty, Abraham has to go to Egypt and then Philistia to survive. Springs of water appear here and there. When God promises to remember Hagar, when God gives Isaac his wife, and when Isaac digs three wells in Gerar while being driven out from two of them. The patriarchs have gone through the land and made known the divine name. Those who have heard of the coming judgment on Canaan and are righteous are gathered to Abraham. This theme of patriarchal evangelization is in the text and is argued by commentators like Casuto, following the traditional Jewish and Christian view. I've also discussed this in my video on uh, what God did with the Gentiles before the coming of Jesus. Uh, but these righteous are a remnant, and the leaders of the remnant are not awe-inspiring. Abraham becomes impatient and seeks to realize the divine promise too early through Hagar, creating more conflict in the human family. Isaac obstinately favors the son whom God has not made heir, creating such domestic hatred that Jacob must run for his life. Laban treats his own flesh and bone like a slave, and Jacob, having learned nothing from the story of his grandfather, marries two additional wives because of impatience and creates bitter family rivals, rivalries because of it. By Genesis 34, which is placed before Genesis 37, despite postdating it chronologically, things have gotten so bad that the children of Jacob have become known for doing exactly the opposite of what God had commanded. As they prepare to circumcise a tribe of Canaanites and bring them under the covenant, making them children of Abraham, Simeon and Levi used the offer of divine blessing to enact their own project of personal vengeance, so that Jacob's ability to make God known to the Canaanites is destroyed. Jacob says thus that you have made me a stench in the noses of the people. The whole project of the human family and the glorification of creation depends on having the divine presence bubbling up within the world for the sanctification and beautification of all things. But the world is drying up for good as night appears to fall. This is the setting in which we find Joseph cast in a pit with no water. The pit may be deep, but it is just as dry as if one were in the Sahara Desert. Joseph is disrobed from his glory and placed under the earth, in that dry pit of death where there is no water. It is when Joseph is placed under the earth in its dryness that fertility is restored to the world. Whereas Jacob had been a stench in the nose of the Gentiles, Joseph went to Egypt in a caravan of incense. God placed the Spirit of God in the nose of Adam so that Adam would bring forth the world's harvest. Again, an argument I've made elsewhere, but note the double need for water and man in Genesis 2.5, and the purpose of filling that need. Adam is to bring forth that harvest to God. After the fall, the curse is to bring forth bread by a different water, the sweat of painful labor, literally not the sweat of your brow, but the sweat of your nose. Spirit was given to Adam's nose so that he would be an instrument of breathing life through the world. But since the fall, the hard labor gradually drains the life from Adam, 
rather than giving life to the world. This is signified in the sweat because water is life, which departs his nose. Joseph is a sweet savor in the nose of the Egyptians, and Pharaoh tells us why. In Joseph, there dwells the Spirit of God. Genesis 41:38. Joseph descends down into the earth where no water is left. When he emerges and travels to Egypt with incense, the night that seemed to be falling on creation and divine project is turned into mourning. The Spirit of God is in Joseph, and the Spirit of God, by wisdom, waters the world new. Note the connections with the spring rising upwards in Genesis 2.5 and the spirits hovering in Genesis 1.2. This is a part of a broader recapitulation of the creation days in Genesis 2-3. The remnant which had been pulled through the patriarchal period unto the point where it could flower forth to encompass the whole world is not just a remnant anymore. By the end of the book, Joseph rules from Goshen which is like the Garden of Eden, Genesis 13.10. He is an exalted Adam, lawfully distinguishing between good and evil. He says, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. He was rejected by his brothers only to illumine the nations and be sought by his brothers in the end all the same. The turning point in the symbolic history of the cosmos unfolded here in Genesis is when Joseph was disrobed from his glory and cast into a pit of earth. His rising up from that pit signifies the resurrection from the grave, as is further confirmed by the emphasis placed on the bringing up of his bones, the word for bones meaning self, to the land of inheritance, and the opening up of new springs in what had been desert. Compare the language of Isaiah 40-55, to where one does not move through the wilderness to reach the promised land, but rather transforms the wilderness into the promised land. The figure of Joseph is the climactic figure in the book of Genesis, the whole story of creation is told in miniature throughout the book. The election and story of Israel from Abraham to the coming of Jesus is told in the narratives of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Through this period, a small slice of the human family is taken to witness to the Gentiles, and this slice of the human family is carefully worked and preserved as a sanctified remnant. The betrayal of Joseph by his brothers and the placing him in a pit corresponds to the crucifixion of Jesus, who then ascends to rule the nations a process which was not all in one direction, but had setbacks and major steps forward. When all the earth comes to Joseph to buy bread, Joseph's brothers come and are reconciled to him with tears. With the nations and the family of Jacob dwelling together in security, Joseph continues to wisely manage the affairs of Egypt for the rest of his life, and the majority of his life is taken up in this happy peace before he passes into the earth. Jesus is crucified, raised, and works to heal the nations, and then bring his brothers, according to the flesh, back to him prior to the resurrection of the dead. That is the whole story of creation. As John Salehammer pointed out, the language of Joseph's dreams is appropriated in the prophetic blessing of Jacob in Genesis 49, 8-12, to apply to the seed from the line of Judah. Joseph was the head of the tribes of the north and Judah of the south. With Judah's repentance, the messianic line comes through him. And with the link created between the figure of Joseph and the Messianic king from Judah's family, one has even more reason to read Joseph's story as leading to Jesus' story. It is not that these two stories by chance happen to correspond so well that Christians have called it a type. Instead, in the eternal arrangement 
internal arrangement of the book of Genesis and in the intertextual threading of the prophetic language running through the Torah and prophets, the Tanakh itself demands that we look for correspondences between the Messiah and the life of Joseph. That they present themselves so readily in the case of Jesus is surely suggestive.